Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. We're playing a couple of our favorite interviews this week, looking back into the archives. My first guest is John Waters, the guy who made Pink Flamingos, Hairspray, Crybaby, but also so much more than that. He's written seven books. His latest is his memoir, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder, which was just released. He is also, very sincerely, the most charming human being I have ever met in my life. Oh, and he's a record collector. He's even released a couple of really terrific compilation albums. He got his first ever record when he was just seven years old. It was a copy of Little Richard's Lucille. He shoplifted it because he's John Waters. John Waters, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. And it's nice to meet you in, in person. person. That's a beautiful yes. shirt. What kind of shirt are you wearing? Oh, it's come to Garcelle. Of course it is. Just before we went on the air, we were talking about how last time you were on the show, we dedicated a solid 15 minutes of our allotted time to discussing the designer Rick Hawakubo. There you go. Yep. It's a rock solid shirt. I enjoy it. Thank you. I have a question for you that occurred to me as I was reading this morning. You've worn your signature mustache for decades. Was it in part inspired by Little Richard's mustache? Oh, of course it was. Yeah, I wrote about that. Yes, it was definitely Little Richard before that. The platters, the guy in the platters had it. And every store detective in every 30s movies I saw had it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so still, I, I think it was Little Richard, definitely. I mean, like, Little Richard is a guy who... He's still with us, too, the last one. He is, absolutely. Well, the, the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis, is still around yes. as well. Yeah. But I, when I watch a clip of uh, Little Richard performing in 1956 yeah. or 1957, that I absolutely cannot believe is real like i can't i can't imagine what it must have been like to hear mayor oats and then have little richard come on well i remember because i was around then and i bought that first specialty 45 of him singing i forget lucille i think was the first one i had of it and i remember my grandmother completely freaking out when i took <laughs> little richard home and the whole antique shook and she heard him screaming lucille upstairs what the hell is that and if she had seen him she would have been really uptight but she didn't see him do you remember when you saw him first I saw him, you mean in person when I interviewed him for Playboy, but um, when I saw him first was probably on The Girl Can't Help It, the movie, or maybe on Ed Sullivan, was he on there? I'm sure he was. Probably so. And playing that piano with that hairdo and everything, I thought, oh my God, it was like a Martian landed. Yeah, it was, it was the exact opposite of 50s white suburban Baltimore where I lived and how I grew up. I mean, he came out of like a tent show world. He was a drag queen at yeah. one point named Princess Yvonne. 
That's what he said in his book, but then he denies his book after, you know, when he's torn still between religion and Little Richard. But that was like a, that was like this kind of drag queen that he was, was like a thing that went on in in tent shows and also revival shows to some extent. And like he came out of this whole world, you know, he was the only part of it to ever appear on television. But it's amazing to think that that could have ever been on television. Like it's, it's outrageous now. It is, it is. And uh, and especially to think that Pat Boone would dare cover his songs, which is the most <laughs> complete opposite. He must have been so furious when he heard Pat Boone go, a wop, bop, a loom, op, a lop, bam, boom. And really, that was the sound of Little Richard doing the dishes in the bu- Greyhound bus station. That's what he said. That's where that song came from. Your new book, which is called Make Trouble, is a commencement speech. And commencement speeches are advice. Like, it's like... Here's wisdom that I have. Well, I gave him my wisdom, whatever you could call it. I, I wouldn't call it wisdom, but it was good practical advice. I, I think. okay. So the, what I want to know is, John. I know it took you a, a number of tries to make it out of both high school and college. Well, no, I didn't try at all. That's what, <laughs> that was the problem. I didn't care if I got out or went. So it wasn't like a couple tries. I wanted to just not go. And I always said if I quit school when I was 16, I would have made one more movie and know exactly what I know today. <laughs> but it's different now. If I had a kid, I would want him to go to school. Unless they knew what they wanted to do right from the beginning. Then you don't have to go to school. The reason you go to school is to figure out what you want to do. I always knew what I wanted to do. Was there anyone in your life that you considered wise when you were the age of college graduation, when you were 22? Oh, at 22, I didn't think anybody was wise. Well, maybe Jonas Mikas, who wrote the underground film column in The Village Voice. Uh, There were certain, yes, at 22, I thought people were wise because I had discovered Bohemia. I know Tennessee Williams and Warhol and Beatniks and all that. Yes, but 22, definitely. But by then, you're an adult. When you need those kind of role models and those kind of things is when you're 14 and and trying to figure out what you want to be and floundering and thinking, let me out of here, which is what I thought about suburbia, let me out of here. And luckily, I had parents that even though they were horrified by everything I did, they realized I had an interest, so they encouraged me in that direction, even though they were completely mortified by the work. Yeah, but 22 is a little older. That's right around when I made 22. I was born in 46. That would be how, what year? Like 68. All right. That's right when I was making Multiple Maniacs, right? So I was pretty angry and crazy at that period. But um, what did you aspire to be? What did you the think? The filthiest person alive. That's what came next. The Multiple Maniacs was trainer reels for Pink Flamingos, basically. So I was making a movie that was basically a punk rock movie before there was even such a word. And I never knew what punk was. There wasn't any such thing. But Why? it was a movie to scare hippies. Why did you want to be the filthiest man alive? What What did you like As about that As a humor, I say that with great humor. Of course. Hopefully. You know, I'm saying it because I wanted a new extreme. I wanted a hippie extreme. That The hippie stuff was too corny for me, even though I was a hippie. I was a yippie. But at the same time, I, I didn't want to sit around singing if I had a hammer. You know, that was not me. We made fun of hippies, even though we were. We used to go in San Francisco and dump white sugar on communes, doorsteps and stuff just to cause trouble. You're a person who's really passionate about connecting with the like smartest, most interesting people that you can find who also disagree with you and are different from you, right? To a point, I think you have to do that, to, to know what the other side's thinking and to be well-rounded. You have to hear the arguments from both sides, even ones you don't agree with, and at least consider what they're saying, even though you don't agree with them. Do you feel like it's important to be a charming person? 
charm is, hey, get away with stuff. Yeah, I'm a hustler. <laughs> I'm a I'm a carny. Well, I mean, you're here hustling so right sure. now. I'm oh, grateful for it. I'm, gl- I'm glad you take the time to hustle, it's, it's, or else I wouldn't have never ever gotten to meet you. It's a fair trade, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's more than fair. But I think I guess, and I've heard, you know, the, the idea of charm came up recently on the show when my guest was a friend of mine named Guy Branham, that charm is also something that is extra important, at least as he conveyed to me in his experience, when you are gay in a hostile world, that charm is a really... It's a really important tool to have, that yeah. to have that social, that social grace, that fluidity is vital sometimes even to your physical well-being. Yes, but un- luckily, I think in America today, I don't feel the world is hostile against me because I'm gay. I'll be honest. I don't feel any prejudice because I'm gay. But that's the world I live in, you know, and I've worked for 70 years to make sure I live in that world where I'm not around but I don't live in Chesnia. In Ches- you know, I mean, there's terrible places, yes. So, um, but I think it depends where you're from. Charm has helped me, whatever charm I have, is it's basically humor still. It's like, uh, it, it, it's how you get along with people. And I like people that can make me laugh, that are polite and funny and get away. I don't like just idiots that are rude, loud people are, are generally not so funny, usually. They're not so witty. Like, I hate jokes when someone says to me, want to hear a joke? Oh, please don't tell me a joke. But be funny. That's fine. Have you, through your career, had long-term goals, or have you focused on short-term goals? Yeah, long-term goals. Always, I can always find a way to tell stories. So long ago, I was smart enough to know, just don't depend on the movies. That might not happen one day. So I always wrote books, did spoken word, did all different ways. So I had many backup plans, and I think that's something that everybody should do, no matter what business they're in. Do you still think about your career in terms of long-term goals? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've signed a two-book deal. I got two. I got homework. Yeah, I got plenty of homework. Do you, like, get up and sit down at a keyboard and... Not a keyboard. I have evidence, legal pads that I like that I was so mad. I've used them to write every book and every movie, and recently they got cheap, the paper, and I called the company, and they sent me, like, boxes of improved, newer, higher price paper that they put out that doesn't curl up when you take it off the pads like the kind I always used to use. So, um, no, I have to have Bic pens, my evidence pad, and I write the, all the books by hand and everything and put scotch tape and cut up. But then the first draft's done it. My assistant puts it in the computer and then it's, you know, and then it keeps going. But I never sit there and type. Do you feel a burden as uh, does that famous Jay-Z lyric, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman? Like, do you, do you feel a burden as the head of John Waters Industries that they're not just an assistant, but probably a few people work for you? I have like, a, you know, four people that work for me. And yes, I feel like, yeah, I got a big, and I live in th- four different places. I got a lot of bills every month. Yeah. So I got to keep thinking up projects. Yeah, definitely. But um, I'm in a pretty comfortable position today, finally, after doing this for 50 years. Certainly, I wasn't always it, but certainly pretty much I figured it out now. It's going fine. Would you be making movies if you could? Well, I got, I've had four development deals from Hollywood Studios, and each time they paid me, great, and then they didn't make the movies. So, um, I guess. But the books did better. The last two books I did did way better than the last two movies I did in profit and and how they were received. So um, I just stay where they like me. I mean, one of the weird things about movies is the 
extent to which you don't have control over the process, even uh, even if you're an auteur. I always did in the end. Even with I knew how to negotiate in Hollywood. I think I did the screen. Te- I mean the market testing. I did all the stuff. In the end, I had big fights, but not that big. Not big. So I'm. Alan Smithy, you know, I had to take my name off it and put that fake name on it that you do. Um, I have to tell you, the Directors Guild gave me the best pension you can imagine. Let me tell you, you should always be pro-union. What did you learn from market test? Which of your movies got market tested? Everyone from Hairspray on. Okay, so what did you learn from market testing? You always learn something in the beginning, a simple thing. Why did that uh, minor question that you can change by putting one shot in or something? What you can't fix is that after they keep going and they test, they keep the focus group. They keep saying, well, what you like, you like, you like, they liked it. And then they're like, what didn't you like? And you finally, they get somebody to say one thing they didn't like. And they zoom in on it and spend hours until they beat you down for false confessions where you start saying you don't like it. And then they expect you to fix that. Or they say, what is your least favorite character? Well, they pick the villain. <laughs> You're not supposed to like the villain. But the head of the market testing said to me once, what is the normie test you against? Right. So, But yet I learned that that's part of how it works. And if they're going to give you enough money to buy an apartment, then you're going to have to do that. So that is just the reality of the situation. So I did learn that and how to negotiate my way through it. In the long run, all the movies came out the way I wanted them to. Do you think about what you would like your legacy to be? Well, I'm writing a book right now where the last chapter is you talk about death and stuff. So in a way, I've already had big retrospectives at the British Film Institute. I won the Writers Guild Lifetime Achievement Award this year. So all that is great. It's like I've lived long enough where they can't get rid of you. And I, I take that with great honors. But it's like being at your funeral and getting to hear the nice things they say when you're dead. Only I'm alive so I can hear them. So um, that's good. That's really great. So all my dreams have come true. And I know that makes people listening want to puke when they hear somebody say that. <laughs> but they have. This is gravy. Well, what do you do with yourself when all your dreams have come true and you're in gravy time? You keep working and have a happy life. And, and try to uh, sit back and look back fondly on all the wonderful things that have happened. Are you good at that? Do you, yeah, I'm okay at sit, it, yeah. Can you sit fondly in your, I mean... In my filthdom? Well, yeah, like that. <laughs> like that. Yes. I, I think a lot about Tom Lair, who, who quit the comedy record business very early, and his line about it always was, what's the use of having laurels if you don't rest on them? <laughs> well, no, but, I keep going. No, and I've had other people, like Wolfgang Tillman said this to me, why do we keep doing this? Haven't we done enough? Why don't we just stop? Why do we keep putting our neck on the line? Because you like doing it. It's part of what you do. And maybe it's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You got to keep, we only got so much time here. Let's let's do as much as we can and uh, to try to leave something, you know? And I guess that's because everybody in show business is insecure. How do you feel about death? You know, I'd like to avoid it, but <laughs> not, there's not much way. Um, I'm already 71, so uh, my parents both live to be 90. So um, who knows? You know, it's coming. It's, uh, I'm not sitting around worrying that the Ingmar Bergman guy in the hood in the state is going to come around the corner at me. But um, certainly I have my will done. You know, I'm prepared. Are you worried about it? Are you worried about it? Well, it seems like kind of what else are you going to do about it? No, you do. You can't help but think about it when your friends die and you see your parents die and you go through it. You cannot help 
but imagine it, you know? So, and you always think, oh, I hope I die in my sleep, but you don't get the choice. That's the unfortunate thing. Almost everything else in life you get to choose or you can take responsibility for it. You don't get to choose this. So um, it is, in a way, the final chapter that you don't can't write yourself. And so, um, yeah, I worry about that only because you want it to be... I don't want, you know, some people I remember that died, I, my last image of them when they were very ill, I don't want people to remember me like that. I Call me, don't come visit. I heard an interview recently with Terry Gross, who I very much admire, and she said that she was less worried about death than she was about dying. Well, of course. I mean, because... Once you're dead, you know, seems to be it. But the dying part, I mean, my mother took three years and it wasn't pretty, you know, but she had a great life up till then. So, um, yeah, you can't do anything about it. You have to get through that part and it can be endless. It's not easy to die. You're still smiling and giving me very definitively ended answers as we talk about this. <laughs> well, that's like a superpower. <laughs> no, it's just, um, it's coming. It's coming. You know, keep repeating. It's not a movie. It's not a movie. Do you think of death as like, as a, that's it? Yes, and I don't think anything right happens afterwards. afterwards, you know. The worms call in, the worms crawl out. Do you find that... Although the resurrection would be fun. <laughs> but what am I going to wear? <laughs> Do you find that to be a, a pleasant thought or an unpleasant thought? My wife is... She's like, well, I wasn't bothered before I was born. I won't be bothered after I well, die. Well, that's a good way to put it. I did buy my plot, and we all bought the same plot. Mink Stoll, Pat Moran, Divine, we're all going to be in the same graveyard, and we call it Disgraceland. So we're going to all be together. So if you outlive me, come do the Madison on my grave. <laughs> I will. I am absolutely 100% on board all with right. that. You can do worse. We've got more of my interview with John Waters after a quick break. Coming up are spat over trigger warnings. No flipping. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? Now, ZipRecruiter's technology can do that for you. Just download the ZipRecruiter app, let it know what kind of jobs you're interested in, and it puts your profile in front of employers. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter lets you know, so if you're interested in the job, you can apply. Download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today and let the power of technology work for you. Blackface in the student yearbook, black fishing on Instagram. You got Israel and anti-Semitism, you got Israel and colonialism, you have go-go music versus the gentrifiers. On Code Switch, we take the subtext of race and make it text. So come chop it up with us. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother and me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother and me the hunt is on
Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here in the studio with John Waters. The film director has a new book out. It's called Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. When I was reading your book, I was, I have to say, like I, was, I found it genuinely inspiring and I was, felt grateful for it. One thing that I, that I was not on board for was that I actually am pro-trigger warning. Like, oh, God, I, I'm not. I like trigger war. Maybe it's I the millennial one. in no, me. I need one now when they tell me they like the Pope. Because <laughs> this Pope's the worst of all to me. But I don't understand the trigger warning because when I thought you went to college so you would have ideas that made you uncomfortable. The same reason I can't stand people to get on airplanes so that they have to have pets with them. That makes me insane. But too. I don't... I, you should stay home if you're that crazy. In all sincerity, though, John, like... I mean, when I think about trigger warnings, the person I think about actually is my dad. So my dad was in the Navy, and he has suffered his whole life very seriously from post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge part of my life. Right. So living with that trauma is a huge part of his life. And, you know, the main thing that, uh, trigger warnings come up around, unless they're being used as a straw man, is usually sexual assault. And I think it's hard. It definitely had to be explained to me in real patient, listen to this for a second, straight guy uh, terms. But I think for men especially, straight or gay, the extent to which the trauma of sexual assault has affected the lives of people around us and the profundity of that trauma is kind of hard to grasp. But I disagree. So not everyone had that trauma and That's not true. every person had it. So why shouldn't people be able to discuss anything they want? But they totally are. I mean, like the and thing about a trigger can, warning, the, no, a trigger the warning thing about says what a trigger they, warning is, is it says, hey, listen, this traumatic thing is going to come up. So, I think that's what everything that you talk about in college should make you uncomfortable, should be something you've never talked about. To me, that's, or otherwise stay home and just never be challenged or never, never, maybe, maybe sometimes you have to get beyond that. Maybe when you go to a shrink, that's all you do is talk about the problem. So why can't you talk about it with other people? Why can't you, to me, just, you're making everybody suffer for one thing. If, if, if. If that's bigger than trauma, then you don't go to that class. You don't sign up for a class that maybe you're going to talk about that or anything. But college seems to me a place where you purposely go to go beyond your comfort zone to consider every idea and to hear every idea and to argue, to debate, to everything. So to me, it's only in rich kids' schools. I promise you they don't have trigger warnings in poor kids' schools in Baltimore. It's in rich kids' schools where their two courses are folk dancing in Uganda. They don't have report cards. Uh, come on. You know what I mean? It's for rich kids. Hey, I happen to have gone to a public school that it's, didn't have report cards. Did, you didn't have trigger warning in that school, I bet. Well, I, yeah, of course we did. I went to UC Santa Cruz. You think we didn't have trigger warnings? I mean, they were brand new at the time this i'm i'm old enough that yeah. that it was a new idea but like i don't i also don't think that because someone and they report teachers and like now teachers live in fear of what they can talk about i don't understand that but i don't go to school so i don't care 
<laughs> you know, I hated school my whole life. So it doesn't matter. I'd hate it even more now. I'm with you. So, I'm with you on that one. Am so, I allowed to say that on NPR? So so to me, if I had quit school in sixth grade, I would know the same and would have made one more movie. Do you feel do you feel a different creative impulse? as a 70-year-old man than you did when you were a 25-year-old man. You described, when you were young, you describe yourself as angry. Are you, do you, or do you not feel driven by that anymore? Well, I'm, you know, a 71-year-old angry man isn't <laughs> Come on. Uh, but when Plenty you're 20, of 25-year-old angry, yeah, angry men are Sexy and exciting. No, <laughs> you, can be, you can be an alcoholic, you can be a drug addict at 20, it's still fun and it's sexy and exciting. It's just, as the years go by, it's not. Um, but. Uh, then I was much more insane, kind of. So I basically, although I got all those movies made, I don't know how when I look back on it, but I did. So I'm not that different. No, I don't think I've changed so much. I've been doing the same thing for 50 years. Are you able to accept it when people come up to you, like accept it into your heart when people come up to you and say, you changed my life? Oh, people start crying when they see me now, which is really embarrassing. But no, it's very moving. It's very nice. And, and they come and they say, Yes. As, as one girl wrote me a letter and said, this is true. She said, you had a analingus joke in one of your things. And I came home and I had never looked at my anus. So I did in the shower and I saw a bump and I went to the doctor and I had cancer, rectal cancer, and you saved my life. That's a really beautiful story, it Josh. It was, I thought. A single tear is rolling down yes. my cheek. Which cheek? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Always go out on a punchline. John Waters, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you Bullseye. for having me. What, what a joy and an honor it is thank to get you. to talk to you, John. John Waters. We'll have a link for his new book, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder, on our website at MaximumFun.org. Also there, we will have a link to the Criterion Collection's re-release of Multiple Maniacs, one of his first films. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our substitute producer, Ragu, has noticed that the formerly green lake has uh, become somewhat brownish. Um, His best guess, and, you know, he is a reporter, is that this has to do with science. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, he skipped on out of the office this week to take care of a new baby. Ragu Manavalan filled in for him. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. There is a collection of music from Bullseye on Bandcamp that he has put up there as a pay-what-you-will. So you could go and... And you can pretend you're uh, hosting Bullseye inside your car or whatever. Or at home, if you have a karaoke microphone. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team, their nice folks, and to their label Memphis Industries. And hey, listen, there are hundreds of episodes of Bullseye that you can listen to 
Uh, I'm talking about nearly two decades of shows. You can find them all on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also grab them in your favorite podcast software. Uh, You can find us on YouTube, where many years of shows now reside. Let's say you're a big fan of John Waters. Why not check out some of those past interviews that we've done with John Waters? He's been on the show a bunch of times. One time we just talked about Christmas stuff. If you want to hear me talking to John Waters about Christmas, it's great. It's got a favorite Christmas song by a guy named Fat Daddy. It's a great song, too. I'm Fat Daddy. I'm Santa Claus. This was a great song. I love Fat Daddy. I mean, he liberated me. I, I was thrilled. I grew up with rhythm and blues music. You know, that's the kind of music I liked. I've never even liked the Beatles. I mean, I thought they ruined rock and roll because they stopped Motown. Um, I didn't listen to popular music after the Beatles until punk came out. So that was a big hole. Uh, so Fat Daddy was just a liberating, funny, great disc jockey to me when I was exactly at the right age that needed to be liberated. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.